trigger warning. This podcast is about grief. Whether you are newly bereaved or whether you have been stuck in grief for years, I do hope this podcast brings you some comfort. Grief is such a universal experience, but we all do it differently. This podcast is not about fixing you or forcing the healing process because there is no cure for grief. It can only be absorbed, experienced, loved and cared for. So whether you are doing it privately behind closed doors or like me, you are kicking and screaming your way through, let's support each other. This is a safe space where we can come together and share experiences. My hope is that this podcast shines a light on your path and gives you the strength to navigate your way through the grieving process. My name is Louise Bates and I'm so pleased we connected. I'm looking forward to interviewing people who have also walked this path to find out what worked for them in the hope that it helps you too. I'm sending you so much love and support and I look forward to sharing this crazy journey with you. Hello and welcome to my podcast, A Gift for Grief. And today I'm talking to Sally Nilsson. Sally is a psychotherapist, counsellor, hypnotherapist and mentor for clients who are or think they may be neurodivergent. Sally is autistic and ADHD. She is a public speaker and advocate for neurodivergence and hosts a podcast on this topic. Her podcast is called Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. Sally is a radio presenter with a show called Love Your Mind on Throme FM. The show is dedicated to mental health and neurodiversity. Sally is promoting neurodivergent psychotherapy, counselling and coaching, building awareness of the benefits of neurodivergent professionals within the mental health sector. She is a contributor on a book project being written by autistic therapists for neurodivergent therapists and the wider neurodiversity community. Sally is also a published author. My goodness me, you are one busy person. Welcome to my podcast, Sally. Oh, and hello to you. And thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm, you know, it's a big subject and I'm looking forward to talking all about it with you, Louise. Oh, well, I'm I'm so excited that you're here today talking because you're talking to us about grief today from a, a perspective of being a neurodivergent person. Is that the right terminology? Yes, absolutely fine. And I don't get too heads up about terminology because it changes every week. Yes. And, um, and I, you know, I would never question my clients about it. So, ah, okay. Go ahead. I'll Thank be gentle you. with you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you're married to Paul and you have two grown up sons, Hugo, 23 and Henry, 21, and you have two cats. How do you manage such a busy life with all the things that you do? I need to be busy because I'm ADHD. So <laughs> I so ideas are popping all over the place and uh, I'm not good with boredom. And often it can be described as kryptonite. So, okay. you know, I, I just get agitated. So I need to keep busy. Yeah. Okay. So it works for you then. That's good. So perhaps we could start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and maybe what you do. So as um, 
Well, you gave a really good introduction. So yes, I am a psychotherapist. Um, I've been in the mental health profession since 2016, when I started off as a hypnotherapist. Before then, I was 15 years in advertising and publishing exhibitions. I've been a taxi driver. I've worked on a farm. I've I was a manager at Fat Face. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I have I've had twenty five jobs, which is common for neurodivergent people. And but now, you know, when I was um, diagnosed autistic, I shouted it from the rooftops, and I made the decision at that point. No, I just want to work with neurodivergent clients. And over the last more than two years now, I can't believe how quickly it's gone. That's what I do, and it is so rewarding because we click because we're wired differently. So you discovered that you are autistic and ADHD quite late in life. Why were you not diagnosed earlier? Well, I didn't have a clue. I just thought I was bonkers. So, (laughs) you know, during my life, things did keep happening to me. You know, there were lots of things that happened to me over over my life, and I just thought it was my fault. And actually, I was gaslit quite a lot to make it feel as though it was my fault. And um, so I just went through life like that until I was 56. And um, was I 56? Yeah, 56. That's a story for another day. That's a really big story. But um, basically, I broke both my ankles at the same time, just walking out of my back door. And when I was eight weeks laying flat on a bed in my conservatory, I at that point realised I thought I was ADHD or autistic because I couldn't run my ship. I couldn't run the home. I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. And that's when it all sort of kicked off, really. Kicked off. That's not a good expression when I've broken both my (laughs) hands. I couldn't kick anything. Oh, my goodness me. It sounds painful. Now, you discovered this three months before your mum died. And you realised your mum was the same. And you spoke about this with her. And she rather liked being in this club, didn't she? So um, mum obviously being much older, and she accepted it straight away. Did it? Did she understand, you know, how it was affecting her or how, that she felt different to other people? Well, it was a difficult time because um, the April... Well, in the April, she was really ill and it was still during COVID. And that experience of her, when I saw her in hospital and with the lights and noises and the difficulties, I kind of saw it then. Uh, But she came out of hospital and we had three incredible months together. Well, we had two years that were good after my dad died. Um, But I'd sit down with her and I said, I've learned all this stuff about myself and mum, I didn't realise how how similar we are. And really, that means that you're autistic and ADHD too, because we're so similar. And she's just easygoing. She was a very high masker, a really high masker. And she did what she was told and lived with dad. And uh, so it didn't come out. People wouldn't have seen it, although she was quirky. Yeah. So did you find that it brought you closer together? We had quite a complex family situation with my mum, my dad and my brother. It was very, very difficult at times and caused a lot of mental anguish for for me. When my dad died, mum and I had these two years and she reverted to how she was before she met my dad. She had no dementia, nothing like that. 
but she took up ballroom dancing. She was started painting watercolors. She got into cloud gazing, which I love. And she started wearing really bohemian clothes. And she she just became mum pre-dad. And it was amazing. So we had a wonderful two years. Oh, that's good to hear. Now, being diagnosed as a neurodivergent is a non-medical term that describes people whose brains work differently or develop differently for some reason. So for listeners who don't know much about this, could you explain the difference between a neurotypical and a neurodivergent um, person? Well, it's thought at the moment that one in seven people are neurodivergent. And Different people would um, group different neurodivergences under a neurodiversity umbrella. For me, I would say it's autism, ADHD, dyspraxia, dyslexia, Tourette's, OCD. But there can be others that come under there. And for a neurodivergent person, we just do everything differently. we're, We're like a different culture. That's why some people think that they're an alien and they don't fit in. We communicate differently. We have different sensory feelings within our bodies. Our environments are really important. And the way we communicate, there's something called the double empathy problem. So if you have a neurodivergent person and a neurotypical person, and the neurotypical person is um, the predominant neurotype, So 80% of the population are neurotypical, 20% are neurodivergent. We can find it very difficult to communicate. It's as if one of us was French and one of us was Spanish and neither of us knew how to speak the other language. And it's not just the, the articulation of it. It's the body language, the tone of voice, the eyes. It's just everything. Um, And we're learning so much more about it but we are very different. We're just different. We're not a different species, but I've always been a bit of an anthropologist and I've done a lot of research. I believe it's an evolutionary difference. So hundreds of thousands of years ago, there were a whole load of people who were naturally neurodivergent. So we might have been the stargazers looking after the herds, looking after the different herbs and, you know, food and, the nomadic side. So we were very revered. You know, I'm not saying we're better. We're not. It's nothing to do with that. But we have a place in society. Yeah. And and that can be very useful, really. And, and even some of us who have quite high support needs, we all have something to give. And we just want to be. We just want to be able to survive and thrive on this planet like everyone else. I think it's so interesting. I know a little bit about it because my daughter was diagnosed with specific learning disability. This was 30 years ago. And I know that the titles are constantly changing, aren't they? Um, And she seems to think that there's a little bit of autism in me and her dad, whether it's a little bit of autism. I'm not sure whether that's the right terminology um but you saying you had a lot of jobs I used to collect jobs and I'm thinking oh perhaps I am a little bit so you know I I find the more I learn about it the more I'm questioning myself as well and And that's I mean that's a wonderful thing because it's a spectrum it's not linear where you've got sort of really autistic down at one end and hardly autistic up at the other end but the spectrum is like a fruit salad and 
when I was first learning, I would say, well, there's no such thing as autistic traits. You're either autistic or you're not. But I'm changing how I feel about that now. And I think lots of people in society can show particular traits that don't fit in with neurotypicality, but they they wouldn't get a diagnosis of autism. I do believe in that. But most of our community would not like to hear, well, we're all a bit autistic, aren't we? Because we're not, you know, autism and ADHD and dyslexia and dyspraxia and all of them, they're all different spectrums, but they do have kind of tick boxes. You know, you you, you need to kind of have a bunch of stuff. Uh, you don't need diagnosis, but you'll do your own learning. You know, it's that sort of thing. So if, you're, um, if your daughter, maybe she's neurodivergent, there's a very good possibility that you and your husband might be but isn't it great? And do we yeah. need to worry about it or do anything about it? Not really. No, no I don't need accommodations and benefits and you can't yeah. get a job and housing and things like that. Or you need medication, or, you know, but generally speaking, if you flutter about on the edges and just carry on the way you're going. Yeah, that's how I feel. But I suppose it's all about that relationship you have with yourself. The more you understand yourself, you know, that improves the relationship you have with yourself as well, doesn't it? So I would imagine your autistic and ADHD diagnosis was a help rather than, than a hindrance. Well, I'll be brief on this bit. So with autism, I was misdiagnosed, as lots of people are the first time, really by two very young, they were together on a Zoom, two very young, um, very neurotypical psychologists. And it was very stressful, actually, because I'd already done a lot of research about it. And so I, I, I'm pretty sure I was um, autistic. But they said I had high markers of ADHD. But I came away and I had six weeks worth of coaching with an autistic coach. And she guided me on a really fantastic journey, which I highly recommend people do while they're on this journey if they want to have diagnosis. And I was re assessed by an autistic woman who had 10 years and had done 800 assessments and she diagnosed me autistic. I know that I'm combined ADHD. I don't have a piece of paper for that. I don't need it because yeah. if you're autistic or ADHD, you hyper-focus and you go on this huge journey. And I feel like I've done two years worth of a degree of research. So what you were saying before, I know who I am I don't really need to know any more about myself, but what I've learned means I can help others. And that's yes. what I do. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Now, you mentioned in our correspondence that there is something different for people experiencing grief who are neurodivergent. Um, and this is something you're researching and becoming more involved with. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? So when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person and everybody, whether you're autistic or not autistic, neurodivergent or not neurodivergent, we're just all different and we experience grief differently. So I can only be an expert of myself. Um, so just to give you some examples. So with ADHD, I know you've got it as a question, but I'll, I'll talk about it with this. So for with ADHD, for instance, there's something called object permanence. And this means that if something isn't in front of you, if it's gone away, it doesn't exist anymore. 
that's why a lot of ADHD people have got piles of things they've got up in the loft or in the garage and it's forgotten about because it doesn't exist anymore. And this actually can happen with humans as well. So uh, on the ADHD side, once my mum and dad had died, I don't use the term pass away because I no, don't know what that means. I don't like uh, that. Yeah, once they, once they died, um, they've gone. So, um, and that makes sense to me because I'm logical and there was a lot of planning and organising, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But on the autistic side, I'm quite scientific and I'm not black and white. I can be really nuanced and grey areas. I can do all of that and be objective. But it's there's another thing called alexithymia, and that means no words for feelings. And for autistic people, it, it can often mean that we experience things in a different way. So um, I, I had two or three different cats who, when they died, I was beside myself. But deaths of humans doesn't do the same thing for me. It just, it doesn't, except for when I went to a funeral of a baby, which was awful. You know, that was terrible. It wasn't my baby. It was somebody else's, but it was very, very sad. It doesn't mean that I don't feel sad. Of course I do, but it's, it, I just feel differently. Yeah. So object permanence, is that just something that autistic people, people neurodivergent people experience? Yes, it is really one of our traits. It is okay. one of our traits and it can be people. So that will affect us with friends and people we work with. Uh, jobs, all sorts of things like that. Once it's finished and we've gone and we've moved on, we've moved on. I mean, it's a, it's a bit like Queenie on Blackadder where she's given a boomerang and she says, why do I want this? If I throw something away, I don't want it back, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's just, it, it, it doesn't always happen like that because years later you suddenly miss those people and you might try and get in contact and it's far too late and you can't do it. There's other reasons. Other autistic people will have a different experience completely, you know, but, but a lot of it is also how you left things, how you left things with your loved ones when they died. If you've planned and organized to the nth degree, like I did, everything was done properly. So by the time it all happened and after the funeral, it's time to move on. Yeah. A lot of what you're saying, actually, Sally, is resonating with me. <laughs> so it's so interesting. So yeah. you told me that the thought 10 years ago of your parents dying would be horrific. Yeah. Yet when it happened, you said the events themselves were beautiful. Could you share your experience with us? Yes. Yeah, so I had I had a friend who I, I'm not friends with now, but purely because we've moved on and we're not the same people. But years ago, our, um, our families were quite close and we both sat there and said the same thing. We can't bear it. And we thought when our parents died, they would have to carry us away in a white van. You know, there's there's no way that we could possibly cope with it. But when it happened to me, I, I was much more affected when my mum was suffering in hospital when she was ill the first time, because the second time she had heart failure and it was three or four days and it was very gentle. And actually, well, I'm doing it back to front. My dad was first, but I'll do my mum first. So what happened with my mum? And this is so autistic. This is so autistic. She um, she was in hospital 
And she said to me, she said, I'm overwhelmed with my love for you, which was such an amazing thing to say. Yeah. And she said, but I don't want you to be here. And I know that's because she went to see her mum in the Chapel of Rest and it it was horrendous because she didn't look like her mum anymore. So my mum, at that point, she made the decision. She said, Sally, I love you so much, but I want you to go now and I don't want you to come back. I know, you know, I know I I'm know I'm dying and I'm perfectly okay with it. So I kissed her on the lips and I said, that's okay, mum, safe journey. And and I went and I was okay. Of course I cried, but I was I was okay about it. And she didn't want a funeral because she kind of shared my father's one. So on my father, he died two years before her in 2019. He had COPD, which is a, a horrible illness. Yeah. It's really horrible. And um, at the end, you know, I mean, he used to talk to me. He used to say, I, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to die now. And I just understood what he was saying. Um, but there's nothing you can do about that. And that's a, another discussion for another day. And so eventually he got a chest infection, which turned into pneumonia and um, went to hospital. And we had a private room, which we always know what that means. And so mum and I were there. But I, because I had such a intense um, relationship with my dad, I needed to know everything. So I spoke to the consultant and I said, is my dad dying? What exactly is happening? And he went off and he got the um, x-rays and he showed me that my dad's lungs were full of, they were completely white. And I said, please send my dad on his way in any way that you are allowed to do as quickly as possible. And they can in their own way uh, and it's legal and it's fine. And they just make them, uh, they made my dad comfortable. Um, They, they don't offer any more antibiotics or food and you can only touch the, uh, my dad's lips um, with a little um, sort of wet thing. But anyway, as dad started going at one point, he actually woke up and did this great big smile and looked at me and that smile stays with me now. It's amazing. I just saw that was as if he'd won the lottery. But then his breathing started changing and my mum and I were there and I put my head on his chest and I had his hand in my hand and I knew what active dying looked like because I'd read up all about it because I'm autistic. And I had my hand on his pulse on his wrist and my head on his chest and I listened to his heartbeats get slower and slower until they eventually stopped. And it was beautiful. It was for me, it was, you know, I it might sound really weird, but it was beautiful. But then as as soon as dad died, I left and I just sat in a room and waited for my mum because I I kind of knew what yeah. things happen after then. You know, there there can be a couple of um physical things that happen. And I didn't want to see that. So um so I left. And of course it's sad, but then I was looking after my mum. And yeah. then I was doing the the funeral and it was a really big one. And I did the eulogy. And I think my mum felt like she shared my dad's funeral, so she didn't want all that again. No. So there was just um, myself, my husband, two boys. She had a basket um, coffin and, and off she went. And it was just lovely. Yes. It was beautiful. And I was very lucky. They had a, a good life together. They loved each other and they had a good death. I, I'm very fortunate. Yes. Oh, that's good to hear. Now, you did share with me before the podcast that you did have a complex and challenging relationship with your dad and when he was dying and you were at his bedside 
your mum left the room for a moment and you whispered something into his ear. Would you like to share what you told me? Yeah, so it was so difficult because um, my dad, I had him on the highest pedestal ever when I was a child and he was so good looking. He looked like the 1950s, you know, Robert Wagner, George Peppard, I don't know, he was gorgeous, hairy chest, medallion, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeously good looking. And I adored my dad. But when I became an adolescent and a rebel and started not doing the right thing, from then on, the love sort of it trickled away over time and it was very painful. And we had a very complex relationship. We, we were different creatures um, and it was very hard for me. So um, I wanted to make sure that things were as they should be at, at the very end of his life. So um, as he was dying and my mum popped out of the room, I did. he didn't hear this. I said, it, I said it to myself, but I mouthed it into his ear. I forgive you. Yeah. And I had to say that because he treated, he didn't treat me very nicely. Yeah. Um, and I didn't have to do that with my mum because I knew that my mum was my dad's wife. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that she called him my Bev. His name was Bev, Beverly, funnily enough. <laughs> and um, it was always my Bev, my Sally, my John. Um, but she just lived the life of her generation. She was yeah. subservient. You know, it was just a different life. But I did need to forgive my dad. And it was so cathartic. And after the funeral, I moved on. Yes, um, yeah. Quite naturally and without any difficulties, yeah. really. It was fine. So being able to say all the things that need to be said before death is important, isn't it? And it can make the difference to how we deal with our own grief. So whether it's telling our loved ones that we love them or making peace with them and forgiving them, it gives us peace too, doesn't it? It does. And I'm not religious, and but I, I believe that forgiveness is, is really good. I mean, in, in my time, because I'm wired differently, I've been bullied. I've had a lot of difficult times. And then when I was diagnosed and I spoke to a fantastic person who's on LinkedIn called Paul Isaacs, um, he spoke about forgiveness and, and I was the same. I just mm -hmm. think if you can just forgive everybody who's been horrible to you, it lifts these shackles from you and you can live a much more freeing life it's just oh. a, it, for me it works it won't work for everybody but I do think if you can make peace or see a counsellor and do something like empty chair therapy where you talk to the person in an imaginary chair yeah. in some kind of guided imagery and you can tell them how you feel before they die if preferable but of course a lot of people die quickly yes. and you don't get the opportunity to do that and so many people who grieve they grieve so passionately forever and I think that's a bit sad really um, that because you can't live absolutely absolutely I do a similar thing with matrix re-imprinting where you can actually speak to the person that's no longer around for whatever reason and have a conversation with that person. And there's something very healing that happens inside when we, yes. when we have that type of um, therapy, isn't there? Yes. So um, did you experience anticipatory grief, grief with both of your parents? Yes, absolutely, I did. Because of my autism and ADHD, I am a really big planner. Um, 
I can't say what I would have done if it had happened very suddenly because neither of them were sudden. Um, but I'd done, I had done so much planning and so many hospital visits. I was a carer, you know, for both of my parents. I moved house for them four times, you know. Um, there was so much that I did, which, you know, it's fine. I, you, of course you do that because that that is my duty. I'm their, I'm their child and, and it's absolutely fine that I did that. But there was anticipatory grief because I hated seeing them suffering. And so I would always make sure I would speak to the top consultant, the pharmacist, the GP, and get the answers. I needed detail. I needed to know exactly what was happening, even to the point of suggesting different medications which were taken on board. I mean, it's ridiculous that we have to do that, but that's the way life is going. So anticipating and going through it, being fortunate of how it happened enabled me not to grieve afterwards. And I only had one blip, and I'll just tell you quickly what that was. Um, I have been teetotal for six years, but just before Christmas, there was a bit of a layering up of certain things, and I was in burnout, which can happen to anybody when you go through a number of different stresses. And I realized I hadn't really grieved my mum, and I, I, because of alexithymia, I didn't know how to do it. So I did go, I bought a half a bottle of vodka, I put my music on full blast. I drank this with cranberry juice and I cried my eyes out and I danced for hours and I haven't touched a drink again and I won't do it again. But for some reason, I don't need to do it with my dad, but for some reason I needed that outpouring of grief on that one moment and it's cleared it. And And I'm back to being teetotal, absolutely. And I feel fine. Yes, yeah, it's what you needed to do in that moment. But anticipate, yeah, absolutely. But anticipatory grief is not generally acknowledged, is it? But it's experiencing grief before the person dies. So people might experience this if their loved ones has maybe dementia or an illness, which you know will lead to their death. But it's very common, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And and also, I do think we should talk about death much more. Um, I mean, I'm on TikTok quite a lot and there's a really wonderful woman and she works in a hospice and, and she shares such amazing information. I mean, the thing is, is we live, we have a life and then we die. We don't always know when we're going to die. But that that's it. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah. So in comparison to your parents dying you say the death of your favorite cats left you completely bereft for days well I can tell you why Um, and it's really because um, very simply I mean many many years ago in 1991 I swam with um, Freddie the dolphin a wild dolphin up in Amble in Northumberland which was the most incredible experience of my life I was totally on my own in the North Sea swimming with this 13 foot bottlenose dolphin and that dolphin knew me. Um, there's an autism and in, an interception. Uh, we have um, we have more senses us neurodivergent people a lot of the time, and it's the same with animals for us. And with with animals, they love you unconditionally. Well, they want you to stroke them and they want you to yeah. feed them, but they're always there. And um, I had breast cancer in 2018, and my cat was by my side the whole time. And that's why, yes, you yeah. know, humans can be pretty horrible sometimes. Yes. 
So can animals, of course, but I've been quite lucky and my cats have given me so much comfort over the years. So, yes. Yeah, it's understandable. Yes. I just did. And I was really upset for a long time. I don't know. I'm weird like that. That's just how I am. No, weird is good. (laughs) But don't you think society tends to treat pet loss as trivial? But, you know, our pets are part of our family and when they die, it leaves a big hole and, you know, you can't take time off work if your cat or your dog dies. And people don't talk about it because, oh, it's just a cat or it's just a dog. But it's still grief. And, you know, there is a name for this type of grief and it can be called hidden grief and it can it's also called disenfranchised grief. So it's when, you know, we feel that there's a lack of social recognition and support for our loss do you do you find that as well yes i mean as a psychotherapist i i work with the loss of or the grief of things um before i was diagnosed and now i'm diagnosed so a neurodivergent person who's just had their diagnosis come through as positive will go through a period of grief for the child um yeah and it's it is profound and we need to work through that a lot because often when people are assessed and diagnosed, they're thrown off the boat without a, a lifeboat, a life belt. You know, um, post-diagnosis is one of the biggest difficulties, but there's loss of other things. There's loss of a job. There's um, loss, you know, after menopause, there's loss of friendships. There's loss of loss is is loss. Yes. Whatever you lose. And, and there are quite a few overlaps. Yes. Um, yeah. How you feel about grief. And how you feel about loss, but uh, but I think that it will be handled differently. If your mental health is pretty good and you're quite resilient, you're quite strong, um, and you're used to adversity, for instance, perhaps you might be able to handle it better. Yes, yes. I don't know. I don't know. Every single experience is different, and just because I have my experience, it doesn't mean to say that when I'm sat in front of any client who experiences loss. You know, I'm there to listen, to hear the story and to offer, you know, sympathy and help. And we're experts in our own grief, but we're not experts in other people's grief, are we? So it's Mm. it's really interesting when you're working in that sort of um, environment with people that are grieving, that we sit and we listen and we learn how they do their grief in order for us to be able to help them sort of move forward in some way. So, yes, yeah. it's their model of reality. I mean, yes. this is something that I talk about as a human givens therapist. We talk about, you know, I don't judge. I mean, I'm very curious. And yeah. to some people, it looks like judgment and it isn't. It's curiosity. Yeah. I need to know why. And I'll keep asking why. And people will say, oh my God, you are a white supremacist, bigot, materialistic, everything else. I said, no, I'm not. I'm curious. I want to know why. And then I can, you know, find out and go down my rabbit holes and all this sort of things. And that's what I do. I'm a a pattern matching visual detective with clients. I want to know their experience. And most of the time it's appreciated. Yes. Yes. So what helped you navigate your grief journey, Sally? Well, part of being autistic, I'm, I am I have what's called pathological demand avoidance. But the pathological bit is a small p. It's about demand avoidance. And it's really this um, very big need for autonomy to be able yeah. to do things on my own. 
And I don't like demands put on me. Um, some are fine, but I don't really like people telling me what to do. And so I will find my own way. I just find my own way. But because of all the build up and the anticipatory grief and everything that happened, um, it was it, it was okay. You know, it was all right. So I didn't need to cope. Okay. Uh, du- during my exams, as when I was studying, I had breast cancer. When my dad was ill and died, I was still seeing clients. When I broke my ankles, I was seeing clients. When my mum was ill and dying, I was still seeing clients. I, you know, I have bags of empathy and loads of compassion, but I just do things in a different way. So I work. I'm not a workaholic, by the way. I, I have time off, but I just keep myself busy. Yeah. Okay. So did you find other people around you unsure how to be with you? or not know what to say, or did you have anybody cross the road to avoid you? Um, it's. It. I think that's one of the hardest parts of a journey for many people who are experiencing grief. Um, and, and talking about my friendship network, not my family, not not really my not my family. No, I mean, boys, it's difficult, isn't it? Because they yeah. they see the same. They think, oh, nanny was you know, nana was old, granddad was old, and they're dying, and they move on, and you know, and that's just okay. But it was a bit difficult with friends, and it often can be. It's not so much that they don't know how to handle me. They didn't ring enough, no. you know, and and I don't know what I wanted, but it was more. Yeah, um, and. And I'm quite an altruistic person, but it's about friendship is a give and take thing. You know, one of my, you know, one of my very, very close friends, I was around doing hypnotherapy and all the time and another one, I might take a stew and everything else. And it's okay. I mean, it's way gone. It's, it's water under the bridge, but at the time it was quite tough. Um, I, I could have done with a few more cuddles and people just calling and saying, I'm coming over, let's go for a walk. Yes. Yes. So how would you describe grief to someone who has never had a significant loss? Um, The thought of it and the build-up to the loss can often be a lot worse than the actual event, but but that was my experience because I'm an expert of myself. Yeah. Um, And as a psychotherapist, what I would tend to say, and this is just not a big stereotypical thing, it's a bit of a rule of thumb, a little bit. If somebody is really grieving uncontrollably after 18 months, then it would be good to see a counsellor, really, because yeah. um, life is a cycle. And when we do come, it comes to an end. Um, talking about death and um, with our children, you know, getting getting them to visit their family in hospital and talking about it more and just talking about it and being with people and and getting support, whether professionally or with a friend or family member is, is important. Um, it, for me, I mean, I just carried on, you know, and I'm a happy Sally, you know, life moves on, but you know, now and again, a song will come on or a cloud, I'll see a cloud or I'll eat um, a linguine (laughs) <laughs> or I'll see my mum's old kaftan in my drawer and of course I'll feel sad. Yeah. But it it yeah. is natural but it doesn't have to be all encompassing with the right support. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So Sally, what words do you like to use um, to express your condolences to someone? Because it's so hard to get it right, isn't it? What you say to one person might just land perfectly, but for somebody else, it can be really clumsy and uncomfortable. Do you have the magic formula? Gosh, what a question. Um, Well, sometimes there are no words. You know, if you've just lost your three-month-old baby, then it it is very hard. Um, Of course, well, not of course, but I I would say, you know, I'm I'm so sorry for your loss and I'm I'm thinking about you. And, um, you know, if if you want to talk at any time, you know, I will will get back and... I will send you a little text or something in in a week and see how you are then. So yeah. you know, so I'll keep in touch. Yeah. Um, so I keep it simple, really, because saying how are you? I mean, that you don't ask that of an autistic person because you no. either say, you want the short version or the two hour version, <laughs> or the masked version or the um, every single detail version. So um, I don't feel awkward at all about yeah. it. I I. I want to know how they feel. I want to know how that person is feeling. Um, and just say, you know, do, do you want to chat? Are you up for a chat? And they might say yes. Yeah. And then, um, and then at that point, I'll shut my mouth and let them talk. Would it be okay to say to an autistic person, how are you feeling today? No. No. <laughs> no. Tell me why. I need to learn more. <laughs> okay, because it's... Um, well, there's so many facets of what you've just said. So um, it's just asking a person how they feel because yeah. a lot of autistic people are living on a planet where they don't fit. Um, and also they're very detailed. They can be very detailed. So if you were to say, you know, how are you feeling today? Then the person, the autistic person might say, um, well, I had constipation this morning. My mum had a go at me. Um, I got stuck at the traffic lights. <laughs> when I was brushing my teeth, I sucked in and I and I found out that I had a hole in my tooth. Uh, my cat had a fight and, and with another cat, and and it will just it, it will go on. And and also, if you say how are you feeling today, an autistic person might turn around, or I might turn around and say, well, I feel the same as yesterday, or probably the same as I'll feel tomorrow. Because lots of us might have alexithymia and feelings are different, they're difficult. What we like to do very often, we just want to get straight into the conversation. So you say, um, oh, hi, uh, what are you having for dinner tonight? Okay. I, or, um, oh, did you go and see that film the other day? My, you know, between you and me and the gatepost, if I ring my son from the lounge to his bedroom... I say, what do you want for dinner? I would never say, how are you? Or talk about things. It needs to be offered. Okay. But look, that's a generalisation. Not everybody's like that. But uh, it's fascinating. I come across that. I I come across that. There's a way. It's often our responsibility to be the ones to speak properly and behave correctly. Yeah. yeah. We're the minority. So perhaps maybe a few more neurotypicals could take a bit more time to learn our language. Absolutely. And hopefully this podcast will help to get that message out there. So, Sally, can you recommend any books, films, podcasts, especially your podcast or groups to support people? Google Autism and Grief. 
And it's it is good for autistic people if they're on Facebook groups. There's some really good Facebook groups yes. for autism asking the question because the autistic community is so friendly and and we're kin. You know, we're a tribe, and that question will come up a lot, and people will just send loads of resources and books and articles from all around the world. Yeah. And that's what I did. So, it, it, you know, if, if I have a question, I might even go on TikTok, autism and grief, and then there'll be a whole load yeah. of stuff coming up. So I don't know a particular book, but, you know, just Google, 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 Google. Yes. And that's great advice too. Now, what words of wisdom could you share for people who have just lost a loved one or perhaps for others who have been stuck in grief for years just to help them loosen their grief in some way? Rest and 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 realise that, well, I think one of the things that I did was because I had such a difficult relationship with my mum and dad, when they died, I didn't want to see any photographs or anything like that. And I found it difficult to visualize a happy moment. And that's really important. I'm, I remember when, when I was training um, to become a hypnotherapist, the tutor was amazing because there was a lady whose mother was very ill and had a terrible time with her mama's dementia. And she couldn't remember when her mom died, she couldn't see her mom in any happy situation. All she could see was the was the dementia. And so with hypnotherapy, it works really well. But just as advice, I would say, have a, have a memory or, th or three, one, two, three memories of your loved one at any point in your life where you're together, either sitting side by side or making Christmas dinner or on holiday somewhere or going for whatever it is of a time where you remember making eye contact and you were smiling. Yes. And sit with that, sit sit with that memory and maybe work with a counsellor with something like that. And, and that's what I've done. So with my mum, when I look in the clouds, I just, I got her into cloud gazing. Yes. And so when I look in the clouds, because I'm not religious here, so she's not, well, she called Jesus her gentleman and she's up there with, with dad. But I just look at the clouds and think of my mum. Yes. And then with my dad, that was a trickier one. But I went skiing with him for four days and we got stuck on a, a chairlift in a huge, great big snow blizzard. And then we got off and he did. He tried to jump over this lump and he went about 10 feet in the air and landed in a huge snow pile with his legs in the air, which was hilarious. And he came out with snow all over his face, beaming. And even through all the difficult times, you can if you can just find a couple of pictures or something like that yes. in your head and then get on with your life. Yes. Because you're still living. Absolutely. And that is fantastic advice. Now, do you believe that grief has given you any gifts? No. <laughs> Did you not no, like that question, Sally? Just hasn't really. Um Grief for me is something I went through and I have to say, and please don't think I'm being mercenary, it was it was very much a phew and it isn't the same for other people. It's, I'm not grieving anymore. No. I, I'm living my life. Um, yes. But lots of people are and, and I have some tricks up my sleeve for when I have people in front of me and I... You know, everybody has a different experience. And, yeah. and if I can, I help. Yeah. 
So you like to think of your mum when you think of, look at the clouds and you have these lovely memories that you have in your mind. So are these the special ways that you remember your loved ones? You don't have any rituals or special things that you do? There is that one story which you know about. and You have to and share it now. <laughs> how much time have I got? doesn't matter. Okay, well, I'll give you the I'll give the version, okay? And I know people are just going to think, who on earth have you got on this podcast? But I'm going to tell you anyway. So um, dad died and was cremated. And um, I wanted him to go somewhere that I could go and visit and think and contemplate and chat to. Um, so I went to, so I got his ashes just in a bag, you know, nothing fancy. And I brought them home. And I went down to WH Smith's and I bought three long poster tubes, those cardboard tubes. And I and I and I got dad and I and I was shoveling dad into these tubes in the kitchen, but he kept going everywhere and he got all over my top. And I was and it was quite a difficult thing, but it was okay. And I I was trying to laugh about it. Anyway, finally I had my three tubes of dad, and there was my mum, my brother, and myself. And we went up to this car park at the top of where I used to live, this little hill that overlooks beautiful, beautiful scenery. And there were some bushes and a picnic table. So my dad, myself, and my brother, without anyone looking, because you're not really allowed to do that, we we emptied the contents of dad under the bush. Yeah. So that was dad. And then when my mum died, um, we did the same thing. So, But my brother wasn't there then, so it was just myself and um, my, my husband and my sons. So we took mum up to the same place and we put um, we put her with dad under the bushes. And what was really lovely, because um, I, I live in a different place now, so it's not so easy, but it's okay. But my one wonderful memory is I went up there and it was a uh, it was a lovely spring day. Mum and dad were under the under the no, it was a summer day, and mum and dad were under this bush. And as I looked down, this little tiny baby bunny was looking up at me directly where their ashes were. And then right high up in the sky was this hawk just gliding, a buzzard gliding. And I knew mum and dad would love to be there. Yes. So when I do go and visit friends, I always make sure I just go there and there's a little kiosk so I can get a cup of coffee, sit down and just tell them my news. Um, and it's not often I need to do that. You know, they're gone. I don't need rituals too often. Oh, that's nice that you can do that. And it's nice that you know it's there. And yeah. that can be enough, can't it? Yes. So is there anything you would like people to learn from your experience? It's just one experience. Yes. It's just my experience. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is all. And for everybody who has anticipatory grief, who have people close to them who are coming to the end of their lives or, or they've gone now, you know, I, I just send you lots of love and support and, and I hope you manage to get through it in your own way. It's the right way. Um, and that's it really, just sending lots of support through the airwaves. Yeah, I like that too. Now, I know that for you, death is the end. So yes. I'm not going to ask you what your thoughts about the afterlife are, because that would be silly. <laughs> <laughs> but I like what you wrote in an email. Life begins, does its thing and then ends. And that's nice and concise and I like it. And everybody has different beliefs about what happens when we die, whether it's the end or not. And I love that we all have our own individual thoughts about this. 
And my daughter describes herself as a bad atheist because although she believes that death is the end, she comforts herself when she feels close to her brother or if she sees a white feather or a robin. And then she has to remind herself that, you know, oh, I'm an atheist. <laughs> and I love, I love that. that. Yeah. And our listeners will have diverse thoughts about the afterlife. But personally, I believe that there's something else after we die. And, you know, whether it's an energy or consciousness or a soul that continues to exist, you know, in some form. And I get a lot of comfort from that belief, but I appreciate that's not for everybody. I love what you say about life begins, does its thing, then ends. Because death is a natural part of our life cycle and that can be enough. You know, it can be enough to just focus and preserve the legacy of our loved ones without having to believe in an afterlife. So whether people find solace in religion or faith or a belief, reincarnation or an afterlife or some, you know, for others who believe there's nothing at all, it's all about choice and what works for each individual. And we all take our own individual beliefs and honour our loved ones in different ways. But none of these beliefs can protect us from the experience of grief, can they? I mean, grief is about our experience. It's not about the person that died. It's about what's going on for us. But I really like how you are dealing with it in your way and this is going to help so many of our listeners out there so I'm so grateful that I'm talking to you today Sally so I'll, I'll just say thank you again. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed it too Louise thank you um, so much for inviting me on and you know I, it's just it's lovely to be able to talk about different experiences yes. isn't it? It absolutely is now before we go these following questions may be irrelevant but let me know what you think. Yes. <laughs> Do you believe our loved ones can give us signs? Um, only, well, you know, like you said about white feather or, you know, because I don't believe in an afterlife, but a cloud or a smell or for me, because I'm very sensory, yeah. you know, orientated, then there, there will be a smell or something like that. Or I'll, I'll turn my head and I'll see a little shadow, you know, or something like that. So maybe... I mean, I'm, I'm a total paradox because I absolutely love horror films, especially the ones about possession and things like that. So, you know, I don't believe in in anything, but I love watching about it. So I'm yeah. I'm a mayor, I'm all over the place, and that's good. Now, if you could give your loved ones a message, what would you say? Mum, you're not going to believe this. I'm now a radio presenter. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Sally, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. And you too. Thanks ever such a lot, Louise. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Gift for Grief. Please feel free to share it with your friends and family and let's encourage others to become more grief literate. If you're struggling with your grief or worried about your mental health, please do speak to your doctor. If you would like to join me on my social media groups, check out the show notes for all the links. And I look forward to connecting with you next time. 
The music on this podcast was written and recorded by Matthew Bates and can be found on his two albums, Fight Back and Kaleidoscope.